1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Ottolia baird host of the channel, and today I have the great pleasure of talking to Simon Burroughs and Glenn Rowe, editors of the new volume, Digitizing Enlightenment, Digital Humanities, and the Transformation of 18th Century Studies, published by Liverpool University Press in 2020 as part of the Oxford University Studies in the Enlightenment series. Simon and Glenn, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Alexandra. Hi.
1: It's an absolute delight to have you both here, and I'm really excited uh, to dig into this volume, which has so much to offer um, both uh, scholars of the 18th century and digital humanists alike. But to begin with, um, we always like to ask people to tell us a little bit about themselves and their research, and how this really led to the to the volume coming about.
0: Well, yeah, so I'll I'll start. So I'm Glenn Rowe. I'm professor of French literature and digital humanities at uh, at the Sorbonne. In Paris and uh, I obviously specialize in French literature that's my degree from the University of Chicago was uh, not in the 18th century oddly enough, um, on a, a figure called Charles Peggy um, who's rather not known outside of uh, France but at the same time I worked in at, in Chicago with a, a group called the, the artful project um, which is one of the oldest and sort of well-known digital humanities French literature research centers in the US. And so I sort of had a double formation, as we'd say in French, one uh, one in literature and the other in, in digitization, and in, uh, eventually in some coding, uh, and, and uh, eventually machine learning, data mining, all that, uh, primarily around the French encyclopédie, so the 18th century big sort of machine de guerre. Uh, and so from that point, it was sort of... Uh, I got a postdoc at Oxford at the Voltaire Foundation after my thesis. And so from that point on, I've been fairly invested and active in in the research fields of digital humanities and its specific interface with with 18th century studies. So I think that uh, that's how I ended up uh, engaged with this topic of of the book. And and Simon, I think, has a, a, a different trajectory, but... Well, we ended up meeting up, uh, oddly enough, in Australia, of all places, but we'll, we'll get into the origin story of the, of the book probably later. But I'll, I'll let Simon introduce himself first.
2: Hi, I'm Simon Burrows. I'm Professor of History and of Digital Humanities at Western Sydney University. Um, I work on uh, French history from the Enlightenment and the Revolution. I've specialised in French writers in exile, um, particularly journalists and producers of scandalous literature in the 18th century. And that eventually led me to wanting to know a little bit more about the wider uh, book culture um, to which they were participating and how their ideas were getting uh, distributed through book trade networks. So that led me to a digital project which I led um, working in partnership with one of my former students who was involved from the very pilot project and very central to it, a guy called Mark Curran, and we produced a database which was published in 2012 online and is still available called the French Book Trade in Enlightenment Europe project or FUGTI, which is a term you'll hear in the rest of the interview. and. We did that while I was working at the University of Leeds in the UK. More recently, I've been here in Australia at Western Sydney um, where I've been expanding on that database and we hope to produce um, a mega database that looks at a lot more resources than the original uh, database did um, that deal with the French book trade and the dissemination of books, which we use to some extent as a proxy for ideas. Um so that's how I got into this and began meeting with people who were in Glenn's networks. And then we met at a conference. I think it was in about April 2015 in Perth, which was away from the side of Australia where we usually were. And within a year, we were collaborating on a conference and book. Um, so that's really how it came about from my point of view. Um, and it's been a great adventure all the way.
1: Well, let's pick up then a little bit on this origin story that you've you've both touched upon. Um, I'd really like to hear some of your your motivations um, in producing the book. You know, you've you've mentioned that it came out of, of this kind of research network and conference, um, but what was the drive behind the volume in particular?
0: Could I start oh, on that one? Yeah, I think um, it would be good if Simon talked because Simon was sort of there at the, at the, at the or, Yeah
2: the, the original the original idea was that. came out of a suggestion um, from Dan Edelstein, um, a professor at at Stanford University and a very well-known digital humanist, that we needed a forum for 18th century digital humanists to get together and start discussing how we could make our data sets link up and serve one another and develop more common standards and ways of making our work ultimately interoperable, um, sharing technologies, and so forth. And several contributors uh, were present when we discussed that back in uh, early 2014, I think, in the States. It may have been maybe in 2013. Um, So Sean Tackett, who contributed to the book, Dan, um, and Jeff Ravel, as well as me. And then when I moved to Western Sydney, uh, they gave me some generous professorial startup funds, as universities sometimes do, to help attract people and get their research an extra boost. And I decided to put some of that to getting us all together so we could have a um, symposium. And I decided that and decided that we'd attach it to the biggest conference we have on French history and culture in Australia, the George Ruday Seminar. Um, and it was about the stage where I was just thinking about my plans for that, that I bumped into Glenn and got to know him and decided that he'd be the perfect um, organisational and, um, and intellectual partner for developing this. And it, it uh, allowed us to tap into two networks and bring them together, really. His, his address book and my address book, um, which is really, in, from my point of view, how the book came about. Do you want to add anything to that, Glenn?
0: No, I just say that that it was a first event, and we just called it "Digitizing Enlightenment" because, for lack of better ideas, and then and then it's continued on, and and so the the conference continues now in challenging under challenging circumstances. But uh, we had a second event in in the Netherlands, we had a third at Oxford, the fourth was at the ISEX, um, uh, big conference in Edinburgh. So uh, there was a, a certain amount of momentum that we that we established. In, in Sydney and it's and it's followed and, and, and we hope next year it will be in Montpellier in in France. Um so it's been a very it's been a although we did certainly trade on our, our address books, as Simon said, to to establish the network, the network has been consistently growing um internationally and intellectually. Uh, and so we now have a, a strong basis of 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 digital humanists working or 18th centuryists working at this interface between the two, uh, the two fields, and so I think it's an incredibly rich topic. But that will uh, also, uh, the book in and of itself is a testament to this first event. But uh, it's it's a it's it's a field of practice that is is ongoing and 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 very relevant even today. So I'll just add that.
1: Certainly. And I think, you know, you say that digitizing enlightenment was for want of anything of, of anything else, but I think you really have kind of um, made a case for this being a field in and of itself um, now, which is which is incredibly exciting for those who are working at that intersection. Um, but I'd like to just pick up a little bit on um, Simon's mentioned, Dan Edelstein, who we were very lucky to, to interview not too long ago on the podcast. Um but just I'd like to think a little bit about the types of scholars who were contributing to the volume and, and the fields that they come from. Could you give us maybe an overview, um, maybe let's start with Glenn, maybe perhaps an overview of the types of people who were contributing to this, um, both, as you say, in that kind of original um, kind of uh, conference and, and, and where it started and then also where it's going perhaps in the future?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah I think uh, um, and, and Simon will undoubtedly agree that it, it's really it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon that uh, and perhaps not at all surprising uh, but a, a first basis of these connections in the, are, are based on sort of personal relationships that, that we have and, and and between projects and between uh, between scholars and 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 so it's a really fascinating uh, way that, that you can also bring sort of friends together to, to discuss things but we all happen to be working in in on, on specific objects uh, or on specific uh, uh, projects, and, and the projects are interrelated in and of themselves. So that's how we sort of saw this book. So uh, the Artful Encyclopedia is, is one of the oldest projects that we present, uh, but Artful itself, uh, you know, reaches out to many different people that have worked with it or with it or or for Artful over the years, and so there's a small pocket there that overlaps. And then I myself sort of overlap with with an Oxford. Uh, network since I was there and the Voltaire Foundation, which obviously is very prominent in 18th century studies. And then from the side of data, these things sort of grow too. And so we know that Electronic Enlightenment, which Nicholas Kronk led uh, as a Mellon project in the 2000s, um, its metadata went to Stanford in a a first digging into data grant. I sort of worked on that as a almost postdoc. Uh, and, and then Dan sort of established this mapping of the Republic of Letters that's based on electronic enlightenment metadata, which is then enriched with other projects and moves out. Uh, and so I think the book and, and and a lot of the projects that that that, that we uh, outline in it is a great testament to how digital humanities for all of its technical, and I say this a lot, that it's, it's all of its technical prowess is about people and sort of connecting people with like-minded interests. And, and that's why... Some centers, some DH centers can can be rather fragile because if you lose somebody with uh, incredible skills or, or competence in in both 18th century studies or any other humanistic discipline, and the sort of technical skills, those are aren't easily replaced. And so I think that 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 finding like-minded people with like with with similar competencies uh, makes sense, but it also facilitates a lot of. Interesting and 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 foundational exchanges, both technically and intellectually. If you want to pick up on that, Simon, um,
2: I don't know. We could uh, we could also think about the book in terms of its um, contributors in a different way. I think one of the things that's really interesting is that we have a sort of three or four generational range of scholars who were involved. So. Um, We had a number of people who were postdocs on projects or very early career, one or two very interesting projects that were being done um, on shoestring budgets by people with um, really very impressive skills and imagination of what they could do on limited resources. Um, Then we had a number of more established scholars ranging, um, you know, mid-career. Glenn was fairly early career in many ways when we started the project um, so and they they tended to have projects of their own that they were running but we also had um the great fortune to have angus martin involved now angus has been preparing a database um, of the french novel ever since he and some collaborators published their first bibliography of the French novel in the 1970s. They started uh, data, creating a database in uh, 1980 or 1981 in 1980s software, which we're about to transfer over to the software package I'm now using um, within the next few weeks. Um, Angus had been involved in the development of what was then known as humanities computing from a very early stage in, in Australia and has some really quite Remarkable um, ability to contribute over a 40 year period, 50 year period, is a view of the development of field. Um, As indeed did Keith Michael Baker, who wrote a very brief but uh, very impressive and flattering um, set of prefatory comments to the volume, um, which I think was a real thrill. I've always thought of Keith as one of the most. Powering intellects in eighteenth-century studies since I was an undergraduate, and um, I still feel slightly um, in awe that we actually actually got him to contribute,
0: um, which was great. Uh, I think that, that goes back to the these notion of these sort of concentric circles that are that are somehow related. And so Keith was at the University of Chicago with Robert Morrissey in the in the late seventies, early eighties, when Robert Morrissey had this idea to sort of take a Linguistic database, the de la langue française database that they had built in France for the for their the big dictionary, and Robert had this sort of prescience that oh that would be really interesting for literary scholars and historians and other people, and so he, he sort of founded Artful on uh, on that thing. But but Keith was there with him, and so Keith, I think, from an early from from very early on saw that what uh, how sort of digital. Technology could forward uh, the field of, of intellectual history of literary history, of book history. Uh, and so I, yeah, I think we're incredibly lucky that 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 he was there. but but it's not it's not just by chance. I think that he he's always been looking out for, or seeing how he could push forward his own research with these new technologies. And then, of course, he's there at Stanford with Dan, uh, and he's been an incredible mentor of Dan. so it, 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 it's the people that how they're connected and 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 uh, that that's really interesting to me, and and it's sort of reflected in the structure of the book also. The, the where the first the first half, let's say, is are, are more are these established projects, how they were built, uh, how they are funded. These are important questions. Uh, with the second half is more or less uh, early career scholars that uh, or designers or technologists that that somehow worked on these projects or have some affiliation perhaps with the network at large. Uh, but are really doing sort of uh, cutting edge uh, things um, on small budgets, as Simon said, sometimes with no funding whatsoever. And so to present those two sort of scales uh, and encourage the sort of these sorts of explorations between these two poles of well-funded, established and uh, young and and enthusiastic, I think it is, for me, one of the main goals of the book and and of our motivation of, uh, of, of putting it together.
1: And I think yes, you're right. You definitely feel this kind of intergenerational um, content reflected in the in the structure and scope of the book. Um, but let's kind of dive straight in then to to some of the chapters. And I'd like to start with your joint introduction um, to to the volume. Um, and here you really. Uh, 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 part of many many other uh, kind of elements, you do draw attention to a lot of the criticism that has been directed towards digital humanities scholarship. I was wondering um, if you could perhaps outline for those who might not be so familiar with digital humanities, um, why people have been so quick to criticize digital methods and why in the terms of digital enlightenment scholarship, a lot of this criticism is actually quite unfounded.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll sort of tackle that head on, uh, and and because I come from uh, from literary studies, where I think the pushback is at least in the sort of Anglo-Saxon sphere is much more is much much heav- more heavily felt, and so I think a lot of these criticisms come from basically methodological disagreements um, with those, perhaps in literary studies, uh, who think that you know that this is a sort. From one standpoint, this is a sort of return of a, a positivistic take on, on, on literature, or a sort of quantification of culture. Uh, and then that's one argument, which which is certainly there, and you have to pay attention to, to to what it is that that we put into place and what we model from a literary perspective. And then there's a more ideological function, uh, which is bound up again in this uh, in these notions of of project funding, and uh, and there's a there's a sort of uh, a, a large critique out there of what people many people see as digital humanities as, as promising all of this future research but not delivering perhaps but but that the somehow they're dominating the funding cycles because if you just put digital in front of everything uh, people will think it's new and exciting uh, so there is that sense that uh, that it's over promising under delivering um, but that that's a sort of gross simplification of both the critiques and and the reality of the field, but for, for whatever reason, Enlightenment studies, because it's I think fundamentally already interdisciplinary, um, so it's not just literary history, it's book history, it's 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 uh, it's intellectual history, it's history of sciences, of philosophy. I mean, the 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 interdisciplinary nature of the Enlightenment itself lends itself uh, to all sorts of approaches. So, sort of uh, a, a large uh, an amalgam of methodological approaches, which are, and I think it's been less resistant um, to explore these uh, these notions of quantification, uh, which go back to the Anel School. Uh, you know, I think there's a longer um, engagement with uh, with new sort of methodologies that can be incorporated. Book history itself is sort of born out of this interdisciplinary. Uh, melange, uh, which which can generate a new field. So my sense is always, has always been that digital humanities would do well to think about how book history itself constituted itself as an interdisciplinary field, so a field that, that, that branches transversely across other disciplines in a very productive way, and it's one that's been highly successful, and there's less pushback on a sort of book historical methodological uh, advances than there is in, in digital humanities. So I think that that's one model or one way that we can think of of, of how to buttress some, a little the, the research that that we're doing. But again, it, there's always going to be some sort of either this ideological notion that the, f- the funding's all going to digital humanities, which isn't actually true, or that mythologically it's a sort of a return to a dry and soulless positivism.
1: And then, you know, by contrast, the two of you are kind of referring to the Enlightenment then as this perfect laboratory, actually, for applying digital technologies. Could I ask you to just explain perhaps a little bit about why the Enlightenment in particular is just such a fertile ground for digital humanities approaches?
2: Yeah, I think there's two ways of really approaching that. One is, I think, the survival of the materials from the Enlightenment period is almost perfect um, in terms of being able to have funded projects that actually can produce representative data sets or more representative data sets as a portion of the whole than um, than for later periods. By the 19th century, you've had the second print revolution. So in the field of book history, you've suddenly got huge numbers of authors and texts being pumped out and merely to uh, digitise that material in ways that make it properly accessible to digital analysis rather than pumping out books so that you can put them online as say Google Books have done which also has its purposes but doesn't produce the sort of quality of uh, both metadata but also um, up to this stage OCR to make those texts really accessible to the sort of uh, high-level analysis and reliable uh, forms of analysis and discoverability that we have needed um, in most of the projects that we describe in the book. Um, and at the same time, that the material that does survive tends to be richer than for earlier periods. So we can see, see that in the creation of um, both commercially produced projects um, in the English speaking world, we were very, very lucky to be served by Echo, produced by Gale Sengage, which is a commercial product, and very, very expensive um, for universities or, or libraries that want to have it to invest in. If you're a British citizen listening to this, you're lucky enough that that it's been bought for the nation. Um, and that was part of the investment that made it possible, I think, for Gale Sengage to produce this this product at the very beginning of the noughties. So very very early database that tried to um encompass the entire print culture of 18th century the 18th century english-speaking world including books produced in foreign languages in britain as well as english language texts produced um, all around the world and they tried to have or aspired to have at least one edition of every title Every work that was produced, and in many cases they've got multiple editions. um, They didn't entirely succeed, but I think something like, you know, fifty-eight percent of available uh, available editions, according to the my most recent um, the most recent accounting I've heard of, comparing it with the eighteenth century short title catalogue through work that's been done at the University of Helsinki, which is. A collaborator that we didn't have in time for this particular book, um, but people I'm working with closely now, and Glenn maybe as well. Um, so we got this great commercial product. Then we got this quasi-commercial, commercial and academic product. Um, produced the electronic enlightenment, so a huge storehouse of the leading philosophers' um, correspondence initially, but then expanded outwards from voltaire and rousseau um, to include large numbers of other people and it was their correspondence so of course naturally a lot of important figures are corresponding quite a lot with voltaire and to a lesser extent rousseau um, so you and with high quality metadata um, the stanford project mapping the republic of letters has been able to do a lot with that if you wanted to look uh beyond the um beyond the world of books or correspondence. If we looked at newspapers, we've got um, we had the Burney collection, the best collection, biggest collection of 18th century newspapers in the world. Um, Charles Burney, the m- musician, the father of Fanny Burney, um, put it together in his own lifetime, um, and it was then uh, became the nucleus for the British uh, Library's collections of 18th century newspapers. And again, Gail Sengage um, produced that. So, at the touch of at the touch of uh, your student's fingertips, you were able to search this huge newspaper archive, which certainly didn't have everything. But in terms of the London Metropolitan Press, um, given that they copied mutually from one to another, almost every report um, across the century was was there for students to find, and it goes back into the 17th century as well. Um, so whichever way you looked at it, we got these really large um, data sets that we could draw on that data mining techniques could be practiced upon that um, that uh, could be searched and analyzed in all sorts of ways and uh, increasingly uh, linked or built into our project. So, for example, I'm involved now with a project. Again, it doesn't get I think it may just get a nod to it at the end of the book um, with the University of Liverpool, where we're uh, planning to. Create or in the process of creating a database of the holdings and borrowing records of every subscription library in the English-speaking world in the 18th century, for whom records are extant, and then we are going to try to link the titles of those books and borrowings to the uh, text of the exact or nearest approximation of an edition in um, Echo, in order to be able to uh, to to sort of have a weighted corpus of texts that we analyze um, to ask some linguistic questions as well as all the questions the library historians on the project want to answer. Um, So so we were just very, very well placed very early, I think, uh, for both reasons of the survival of materials and the data sets that then made possible to do at a relatively early stage in the digitization process. Um, And also I think the other thing is that you know, if we think about the Enlightenment, not as a period, but as uh, as a cultural phenomenon, it is very much based upon the printed and the written word. So those particular sets of sources linked to the sort of intellectual history that we're doing. Um, and that might take us back to one criticism that Glenn didn't discuss, which is the question of whether, you know, we're actually in our digitising Enlightenment project focusing a bit too much on, uh, white male elites um, in and a sort of more traditional history. Um, and that was certainly suggested when we had a tweet competition, uh, our winning tweet in our tweet competition sort of pulled us up for that to some extent. But I'm not sure the criticism is is really quite valid. If we think about, you know, what some of the, those great white men were doing in their texts, we really are looking at um people who might be seen as motors of change. The figure I might pick out most of all might be the Abbe Raynal and his collaborators, uh, which included Diderot, who perhaps did the most important uh, part of the writing associated with Raynal, producing this massive um, multi-volume encyclopedia of the European colonies that contains, uh, written by Diderot, um, the, the key passages, the most um, comprehensive uh critique and condemnation of slavery, probably, that was ever written. Um, An absolutely uh, earth-shattering attack that one Enlightenment historian, Jonathan Israel, has even said is, uh, perhaps with a certain amount of exaggeration, is the book that launched a global revolution. Um, And of course, the revolution he's talking about included the um, rebellions in the Caribbean colonies. Um, though one may ask how many of the um, slave rebels actually read uh, read Reynal, but on the other hand, many Europeans had, and um, that fed into uh, the movements in Britain and France to end slavery, and although the actual ending of slavery in the French Revolution was partly a cynical political move, certainly it created much of the environment um, that surrounded it and the intellectual uh, ferment that made made the liberation um, something that would be heralded as a great advance for humanity um, in a society that previously had not thought too much until the 1780s about slavery as a problematic um, endeavor. Um, do you want to add anything to that, Glenn?
0: I mean, uh, not on that particular point, but but I think on the uh, no on, on those criticisms, I, I think that uh, that's one of the goals. It's one of the advantages, as Simon described it, of the 18th century studies. It's it's sort of in a sweet spot between the sort of paucity of 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 of, of sources in the 17th, 16th century, um, and and the explosion with the second print revolution in the 19th, where there's too much information. Um, the 18th century grapples with this. Notion specifically in the encyclopedia of 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 information overload, uh, and 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 but there's a sense that we can we can get a hold of of a sense of the 18th century in a representative and and not exhaustive but but comprehensive manner uh, with these sources, but but you inevitably they're bound in these sort of sort of political and commercial. Aspects of how these resources come about, and they inevitably do begin with with with, with the dead white white guys Voltaire and Rousseau. But the idea is, is to move forward, and that as these resources grow, and as our analyses, both digital and 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 scholarly, become more uh, attuned to dealing with the scale of these collections, that connections. Uh, to less canonical authors uh, and to women can be uh, can be brought to light so one of one of the, one of the on a, a project i worked on looked at uh, we took uh, emily du today's uh, work uh, uh, her book she published the édimon physique uh, which is an exploration of 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 leibniz and wolf uh, and we ran a sort of sequence alignment algorithm over the Encyclopédie to see if we could find where there were passages where people were actually using Émilie Duchat today's work. And there were, and it was often, or perhaps never uh, cited. And so we were able to come up with about 25, 30 articles that legitimately can be said are cribbed from Émilie Duchet today. Uh, there are of course no women, there's one one woman author in the Encyclopédie, and she's predictably referred to as anonymous woman, uh, which is not so great, but it uh, we think it's the uh, Chevalier Jocourt's wife, uh, but in fact, there are these passages that are used in important uh, articles uh, by Emile Chatelet. So it's a, but through which we couldn't we couldn't have found without uh, these digital tools, um, it, because you just would have had to know you would have had to know her text by heart, perhaps in reading the Encyclopédie uh, that that you were reading. In fact, a description from Emile Chatelet and not the the Encyclopédie's author. Uh, and so that if we can keep building these resources, but also keep refining our tools, I think we can address the problem of uh, uh, of diversity in, in these collections in as much as it can fully be uh, be addressed. But I think that some of the other projects working on the salon uh, in the second half of the book, I think of uh, of Melanie Conroy's uh, article with Chloe Edmondson uh, the chapter the, these are again thinking of how uh, women in the 18th century uh, can be conduits of this intellectual exchange uh, but how can we represent that uh, and perhaps digital methods help us to uh, address what what has been a sort of uh, a lingering uh, lacuna in, in in intellectual history
2: yeah and I think there's not just, intellectual history as well I think we can approach social history and business history um, and other things through some of the data sets we're creating. Uh, for example um, there are there are within my database of the French book trade um, a, a sample of really interesting women book dealers. Um, And this is a trade in which women were always said to have been more intellectually um, and practically independent um, and more represented than in almost any other trade. And certainly within our database, which had initially 2,500 clients of a particular um, publishing house, or I should say correspondence, um, about... Only about 2% of the identifiable writers were women, but a far, far far greater number were involved in the book trade than in any of the other trades that this publishing house dealt with, including uh, people in hospitality and and in the carriage of of, uh, books and other products around places. So there was quite a lot of evidence um, there to suggest that it was true that Printers were more likely to be independent women than, uh, than you would find independent women in other trades. Um, but as we've gathered more and more data from other data sets, I think we'll be in a position where we can actually say, you know, make analyses of whether women in the trade behaved differently in terms of what they were buying, what they were dealing in, whether they were involved in the illegal trade or religious trades than uh, men sort of questions that no one could ever have asked at any other period in history. Um, So we can do a gendered analysis. But I think the other thing that happens from these large data sets is that they enable discoverability. One of the great problems of writing what we might think of as um, subaltern history or history from below is finding enough data, or always has been, um, on which to work. Um, And some digital humanities projects have got round that through crowdsourcing or systematically looking for the women writers we know, for example. Um, But there may be other ways of enlarging this canon. Certainly the Helsinki team are going through the English short title catalogue and their metadata, and they're using name analysis and possibly various other tools to try to identify Writers who hadn't previously been identified as women, and I think they'll be announcing quite a few of them by their methods. Pe- writers that they suspect are women that hadn't previously been thought of as women authors. So it can help us. It can help us with discoverability. It may help us overcome invisibility, and um, it allows new ways of analysing groups of. Uh, Women or racial minorities or others by bringing together um, data from so many places that we begin to get insights that we couldn't otherwise do. Um, So that's a that's a kind of hope or collateral benefit in some ways of these data sets. It's not the only collateral benefit. There's many others. They may not have been originally put together for that specific purpose, but they enable us to ask those sorts of questions um, that previously either took a lifetime of study or um, a great deal of uh, pooling of information between a large number of dedicated scholars um, or, uh, or otherwise very, very difficult to manage.
1: So let's then perhaps look at some of those projects. And, and, you know, the first section of the book um, explores the existing and now some of them very long-standing digital enlightenment projects. So these include, you know, you've already mentioned the Artful Encyclopédie, Electronic Enlightenment, Mapping the Republic of Letters, the MMF, the Comédie Française Registers Project, uh, the French uh, Book Trade and Enlightenment Europe Project, and, uh, of course, Alicia Montoya's Mediate Project. And you you argue that these have not only just made substantial contributions to Enlightenment history, but they've also, really been pivotal in the development of of digital humanities um, approaches Um, and we can really see this in in the impact of your own respective digital projects um, which feature in in the volume and perhaps we might start with Glenn um, you know your chapter with Robert Morrissey is about the artful encyclopédie um, and presents this really detailed account of of the creation really and evolution of uh, the digital edition and database and you know these trials and tribulations that you encountered along the way and to just pick up on you know something that you've already mentioned which I think was really fascinating um, was the the parallels that you drew between your own experience um, of information overload um, to use that that wonderful historical term uh, within the project and and those really experienced by by Diderot and other proponents of the Enlightenment. So I was wondering if you could just unpack a little bit of this connection of, of information um, overload for listeners.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the Encyclopédie has been—it's it, it sort of—it it can be taken, I guess, as a sort of microcosm of the Enlightenment as a whole. Uh, but I, but I also think, as our chapter outlines, it's it's also a, a good sort of uh, test case for for. Close, to, you know what we what we were considering the humanities big data, and so I think Robert Morrissey, which the project obviously predates me, uh, since they digitized the the Encyclopedia in the in the '90s, the late '90s, uh, not without controversy, and so they didn't really know it was. I think it was keyboarded in in China, but there weren't prop, there weren't protocols in place, frankly, in the in the '90s for that size uh, of of a, of a data set of a, of a text. Uh, and 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 the com- and the complexities that that came with it. So there's lo- there's competing structures. There's a there's an alphabetical structure. There's also cross references. There's there's a taxonomic uh, structure, uh, what we'd call an ontology today. And so all of these things were there and very very complex. And and the encyclopedia itself, uh, through through uh, the conversations of Mark Olson, who was the lead developer of uh, at Artful, who's still there. Um, and it participated in these debates around what, what, in, what has become the TEI. And so the TEI was put into place there. And Mark sort of pushed back against this notion that, that you can represent uh, textuality almost in an infinite sense, because on some level, you also had to build text that, that were able to be parsed by, by, by systems. And this was a, a big debate uh, in the late '90s, in the early 2000s. And, and Robert Morris, he made the decision. Uh, again, un- not uncontroversial, because in France they said, well, yes, you have to do, you should digitize the encyclopédie, but it needs to be fully corrected. All the problems have to be addressed ahead of time before you could put it out. Uh, that's sort of the French take. Uh, and Robert said, well, that'll take forever, that'll take 20 years, and, and, and I don't have that sort of time. And so we put the encyclopedia online um, because it was. Uh, there was this sense that finally you could use it, um, that, that there wasn't, there was always a, a block of, of how to use or, or, or sort of, there was always a, a disconnect between how Diderot describes the way you should use the uncertainty because it's, it's a text to be used and you follow the cross-references. You explain that to students and they say, oh, that sounds great, but in the 90s or pre-web time, Uh, it it wasn't actionable. And so you would have to go to the library. There's 27 in folio volumes. They're in rare book rooms. It's not a usable interface, um, the print edition. And so there was this notion that by putting it online, finally it would be actualized, uh, that there was a potentiality of the text that sort of waited uh, for the digital. And in particular, the cross-references turned into hyperlinks. Uh, So there's this notion, and and there's a scholar in Montreal, Benoît Melançois, who published an article and said, perhaps we're the first readers of the Encyclopédie uh, because we now have this, uh, we now have this digital object uh, that that can function perhaps as Diderot expected. And so it, it, and his notion was that you, it already the Encyclopédie was, was, was too big uh, that you couldn't, no one would just sit down and read it from, from cover to cover uh, and nor how that's, that's not what it was. And so you should be able to navigate through it and, uh, by using the alphabetical structure, by using the taxonomical structure, and by using these cross references, all of which would, would become a way of teaching people uh, not just the, the, the contents therein, but how to engage critically with them. And so some, some cross references we know uh, are, are critical and will lead you to an article that perhaps presents a, uh, a, contra- a contradictory premise from the article that you were in. And so this notion of putting these two uh, contradictions together helps generate what Diderot called l'esprit philosophique, l'esprit critique. And so our notion is that, uh, and this was a way that people could distinguish between good information and bad information. In this period where uh, he was certain that in 200 years, we would just all be inundated with with texts and that if we didn't uh, purposefully uh, engender this sort of critical engagement with with text, people would lose sight of what was important and what would and the function itself of the encyclopedia. So that's always been our our sense from the beginning. And then progressively, we've uh, corrected the encyclopedia through through sort of crowdsourcing efforts, through other funding efforts. So it's gotten better. And then in about two thousand seven, when when I was at our school, we decided between when data mining and machine learning these things became more available to scholars in the humanities, or more, we became more conversational, let's say, uh, within these uh, things. And, and we decided, and the encyclopédie then sort of morphed into this amazing sandpit or test bed, uh, where we could uh, test things like automatic classification or ontologies because because it, it had these classes of knowledge that were, were cooked into the encyclopédie. We could text uh, we could test with other algorithms how it's constructed as a as a text of compilation, but also of creation, uh, and then how it's sort of received uh, by other texts into the 18th and 19th century. So it's it, it's been particularly fruitful as a text that that is uh, that we call a living edition. It's not a, a sort of critical edition, which which now uh, predictably 20 years later the French have have released a, a critical edition, in Encre, which is a lovely uh, project. Uh, but it's a different thing. Ours has always been more sense of of of, of how to disassemble and reassemble the object, uh, not to simply reproduce uh, its print uh, its print predecessor, but to make a sort of interface of a research interface, a research object uh, that can constantly, It's constantly changing depending on on what sort of methods you, you throw at it. So it's been a it's been a really rich and continues to be a rich vein. Uh, that we that, that that we that we happily mine for for both methodological insight into how to deal uh with these methods that come directly out of the data deluge if you will and big data uh, uh, big data methods and the 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 conscious effort by the editors themselves that they were uh, also confronting the same sort of problem in the eighteenth century so i think it's a it 's a lovely uh, there's a lovely cohesion, a uh, coherence um, to both the digital and, and the print object.
1: And Simon, your your chapter then on the on the French book trade in Enlightenment Europe is also another fantastic example of just how digital humanities approaches can call uh, longstanding historical views into question. I was wondering if you could perhaps just tell us a little bit about how the database project came about and what it has offered um, our understanding of the Enlightenment book trade.
2: Okay, so... Um, I guess it's not just the Enlightenment book trade that we're trying to understand, but more about Enlightenment print culture and the dissemination of ideas, um, using books and their dissemination as a proxy for the spread of ideas. And obviously, there are a whole host of potentially problematic assumptions around that. And eventually, I hope to address one of them which is the big problem of reception going from okay so these books circulated they circulated in numbers but how did people read them Um, and Glenn and I have been talking for a long time about one of the ways that we might do that working with the electronic encyclopedia data in particular um, though certainly not the only one so I'm still hoping glenn's up for that project because i think we're moving fairly fast towards it um i don't think we should debate that here glenn by the way i won't won't push you um
1: breaking news
2: (laughs) yeah breaking news so um so actually it began as lots of good projects begin um with a very very small question um i was working in 2002 i was working towards my book Blackmail scandal and revolution, which dealt with French exile writers in London writing um, sordid attacks on the French monarchy, mostly um, sexual libels against the French court, and I began to come to a conclusion um, that that most of these works, what were aimed at women of the court, either the Queen Marie Antoinette under Louis XVI and before that against uh, Louis XV's last two mistresses, Madame de Pompadour and Madame du Barry. Um, And there's a title in that title of the book as I eventually adopted it, there's the word blackmail most of these works were generated out of attempts to blackmail the monarchy or attempts to get payoffs first, and they only got published generally if the court didn't play ball and uh, actually paid blackmail money. And I became quite convinced that although there was this huge literature about um, texts attacking Marie Antoinette before the revolution, um, mu- much of it from uh, feminist scholars, but initially inspired by uh particularly the work of Robert Danton, although there was a prehistory of works looking at this literature, um, even before him. um, That sort of said, this work helped to undermine the French monarchy and so forth before the revolution. And uh, Danton pushed uh, that illegal works, not only attacks on Marie Antoinette, he actually wrote very little about them, but he did write a lot about attacks um, on Madame du Barry and Louis XV. before Marie Antoinette became uh, the uh, queen consort of, of Louis XVI, Louis XV's grandson. Um, so I became convinced that these works didn't circulate when these women were in power, which actually made a great deal of sense. You know, if you attack Marie Antoinette, that would be attacking the uh, wife of one of the two leading monarchs of Europe. Um, who was also the daughter or sister, depending on the time period, of the other leading royal house of Europe. And these were absolute monarchies. They didn't take criticism lightly. We're living in an era where there's certain democratic ill-elected leaders uh, who don't take criticism lightly. Um, But these were were potentially ruthless regimes. They weren't people you'd want to cross. Um, So... And in two thousand and two, another scholar um, published a, a an essay which argued much the same that these things weren't available in great numbers. But she'd done it from a completely different data set than I had. And I put when I put the two together, I thought, I don't think these Marie Antoinette libels were circulating at all. I've got all this evidence of people chasing them but never finding them. Professional policemen, professional um, writers professional booksellers, but I can't find any evidence that they actually ever got their hands on a copy except the few that were printed and that we knew ended up in the Bastille, um, in the regime's secret depot, where instead of destroying everything, they destroyed some but always kept a few copies for reference. And we knew that they'd been released at the French Revolution. So I became convinced they didn't exist and argued this case. Arguing a negatives very very difficult. All it takes is someone to go, ha ha, I've got a piece of evidence that you haven't found. You're wrong. What an idiot you are. Um, that was my great fear. Um, so I tried to go to every source I could think of that might mention these texts and see whether the patent held. And the final place I needed to look was the archives of the Société Typographique de Neuchâtel, um, which Robert Darnton had used to study the illegal book trade. Um, And he'd mostly done that um, through the correspondence of booksellers. But while I was looking at the correspondence of booksellers there, I realised there were a whole load of um, accounting documents. And I looked at some of these accounting documents. The main ones I looked at were rolling stock inventories, which I immediately could understand and I could see, and they were organised alphabetically, and I could flick through them and read all the thousand titles they were dealing with. And, of course, none of my Marie Antoinette Liebel turned up until after 1789, just as I would have predicted. Um, so that was quite helpful, and I was able to trace. There were some orders for one or two of these books, but I was able to prove that they'd been they'd been sourced because of rumours, and I knew that because of the spelling, which was unique to two sources. Uh, there were many sources that mentioned these books, but only two spelt them in this way. I was able to trace... Um, beyond all reasonable doubt, exactly how the bookseller who'd ordered them had got wind of these books that never actually existed and had ordered them. Um, so that was, well, as I looked at these accounts, I thought these will be a really great database project. I'm surprised no one's done it before. Um, I don't know much about databases, but I can see this is going to be a great project. I can certainly work with the rolling stock inventories. And if I can crack how the other, um, the other accounting books work, then... Um, I should be able to use all of them. And that's what I said to my then just completed doctoral student, Mark Curran, when I tr- persuaded him a couple of years later to uh, come at my expense for four days to uh, to examine these accounts again. And um, I worked out the practicalities and the time, and he tried to crack the accounting system that I hadn't been able to to do merely because I tried to move from the rolling stock inventories to the account books, if you did it the other way around, it became clear what was going on. But I'd only had a couple of hours looking at the the, uh, more difficult accounts um, to do that. And he studied them for three or four days. And on the last day, he suddenly realised how it all fitted together. And we wrote this great grant application in four or five weeks. And any academic who's written grant applications realises that that's pretty amazing. And the reason was, it all just came together and we got this historiography to address. Um, And we argued that this was not only the best possible source, but as everyone else had said, it was the most representative source that we had for understanding the book trade and the dissemination of books. Um, And our big discovery in the project was that wasn't true. It wasn't representative. They were only selling Swiss books, as Mark began telling me as he was doing the data entry. and that became a big problem. In fact, it cost me about four years of good good night's sleep because the whole premise for my volume, uh, originally I was going to do the volume on the the nature of the publishing house and its trade and Mark was going to look at the um, was going to look at various enlightenment discourses and how they spread. but he sort of asked to change that and we both knew by then that it was really problematic the sort of second book on the dissemination. So I didn't think it was fair to ask someone at the beginning of their career to do that, and I was quite interested in the other one as well. I think I I think I got the long straw in the end, but for five years it felt like the short straw um, that we had to work through, or I had to work through, you know, what representative insight we could get from this publishing house. And we could do that because we could break up the digital analysis. They did deal in books from other booksellers there were rather more of them once you allowed for the fact that two thirds of what they sold was uh, was their own public books they published themselves but they also wholesaled other people's books and they also had a retail branch and in that wholesale and retail branch actually a third of the books that weren't their own that they were selling were coming from abroad so there was actually quite a big international link and they were selling very large numbers abroad so if we broke up the trade if we define which books fitted in which categories we could begin to do some really interesting analysis and we could do the same by defining their their clients some of them were retailers some of them were wholesalers and so forth once you broke them up you could begin to get some interesting things um but at the same time, I realised that to get a really representative overview, we needed to look at other um, book trade sources. So that's what I've been doing for the next, um, gosh, uh, we published in the next eight years, I guess. Um, and I was able to do that partly because Western Sydney gave me some quite generous startup funds, which kick-started things. And then, uh, then we uh, won a grant to... Uh, do further work uh, from the Australian Research Council, and then more recently, I've been working with this Liverpool team, um, doing some of their digital development in co- collaboration with um, a with uh, a database platform called Heurist, and a with uh, with a group um, called Intersect Australia, who do uh, universe are owned by the universities. Uh, in this region and uh, do a lot of digital development work. So I've been working with those two teams uh, uh, for that purpose. Um, So what I'm hoping is that by the end of, uh, certainly by the end of my career, we will have all the relevant major book trade sources where we can draw up numbers of books involved in major events within the book trade, whether it's that they've been confiscated by the French customs, which is a data set which has been giving all sorts of headaches, but real treasures. Um, There was an amnesty for counterfeited or pirated works published um, in contravention of the privileges, effectively a primitive copyright system that were owned uh, by other book dealers. Um, And that amnesty generated records across the country of what book dealers were both producing uh, illegally and selling illegally. Um, so that's a fab- fascinating source. We've got the print run records of a particular set of book licenses as well. And when you add all of these things up, you get to see things that aren't so visible. If you go to uh, person- private libraries or surviving collections um, and really to dig below the surface of the Enlightenment um, to the things that intersect with Enlightenment or are outside the Enlightenment. So, you know, I've become very interested in uh, religious books, the anti-Marie Antoinette Lebel that I own is now consigned to the bookshelves behind me, but I sleep with a copy of the Ange Conducteur, um, a book of religious devotions, which was uh, which was one of the leading religious bestsellers of 18th century France. Because one of the things we found is that is that the religious printing sector was far more extensive than we might even have imagined. And on one level, that's not a surprise. You know, the 18th century France is a Catholic country. You'd expect there to be a lot of religious publishing. Um, and that's true. But we nevertheless underestimated the scale and the social penetration by a, fa- by a very considerable margin, um, which raises some interesting questions about whether this is really a society going through a a secularizing enlightenment outside a very, very small um, group of people. And that also raises questions about the real shock of the religious policy that develops in the French Revolution, um, for example, which had long been seen as a, um, certainly by many French historians, it was part of a sort of continual progression towards modern secular uh, French elite society. Um, and the Christianization of the revolution is really just an intensification of a process but this uh this sort of evidence suggests maybe that's not the case and we need to rethink the secularization that it's very it's a very late and very sudden and very sharp development which might explain um some of the dislocation of the revolution um and and the and its religious policies and the extent that religion then became a a battlefront um, in France, really, and a marker of identity to such an extent for the next hundred and fifty years. Um, it's not just—it's not just that the, the the terror and the dechristianization is so brutal, but it's also that it's so sudden that it really has a very, very uh, small constituency of supporters for the end—the religious end purpose, let alone the means by which it's done. Um, so that would be one example that i think is really important i guess the other one is that um i think it would be possible to look back at my work on um the anti marie antoinette lee bell and say that it's undermining a, a largely feminist literature um, but i think it does something quite the opposite um i think that uh the, the best of that feminist literature, the work of Lynn Hunt, already was stressing that actually there were relatively few attacks on Marie Antoinette in print available before the revolution. I've just said, no, there were none at all, or virtually none at all. There there are some caveats, even in my statement to that. Um, but, but that in itself seems to me to um, decouple something else um, that's really quite important, because Lynn Hunt says that this is the period of the Invention of pornography. Um, so, what it does is, is uh, in some of the other scholars who've addressed the addressed this, uh, have seen the coming of the revolution as something that is. There's a tradition in some Amer- some corners of American historiography. Some of the great American historians have seen the revolution very much as, and the Enlightenment as incredibly progressive, and they've interwound um, these sorts of uh, pornographic attacks on the Queen. With uh, that progressive narrative, Um, if instead you say this is a product of the revolution, as uh, and acts of uh, acts of it generates out of uh, violent attacks on the queen and so forth, you've taken away any sense that this is something that is progressive. It's a weapon of war and hatred. Um, And I don't know of any other uh, compelling historically progressive. progressive uh, narrative that can fit around misogynist pornography. Um, So I think it's kicked away something really that's quite important. Um, And I hope it's seen in the long term as being a really positive contribution there.
1: Certainly. And we're, I'd like to finish actually our interview later um, by talking maybe a little bit more about this historiography. But before we do that, I'd just like to move to the to the second um, section of the volume, which um, explores m- more current, we might say, work taking place at the intersection of, of digital humanities and enlightenment studies. And it really shifts focus um, to the methods that are being used by scholars and also digital designers. I think it's really important to stress that you, you don't just have the kind of the academic front, you have also the digital designers um, integrated into the volume, which I think is really um, helpful for those who are perhaps looking to, to be involved in this field. I was wondering if you could perhaps just briefly give us an overview of just some of the different technologies um, and approaches that are that are addressed in this um, section, which also might give listeners an impression of perhaps where this field um, is going and, and what kind of technologies we might see uh, more frequently in terms of enlightenment studies in the future
0: sure uh yeah I think it's uh, it's it, I mean it's it, for, for me it's probably the the most interesting part of the book because it does show a certain dynamism and 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 willingness to experiment uh, with new methods from from younger uh, earlier career scholars and 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 also including someone like Nicole Coleman who's an academic technology specialist at um, Stanford who's worked sort of hand-in-hand hand with Dan Edelstein in developing uh, not only mapping the Public Letters project, but the uh, subsequent software that came out of that, which would be Palladia, which is a wonderful uh, system that she has designed uh, where you can visualize uh, uh, networks uh, a- across uh, different data sets. And so I think it's that conversation between technological development and and, and intellectual projects that, that things get really, really interesting. And so I think that Nicole speaks uh, very eloquently in her chapter about how it is a dialogue uh, and how you, you it's not just technology leading uh, or, nor the sort of uh, uh, the sort of scholarly questions leading, but that it becomes this sort of dialectic between development and, and, uh, and research questions. And, and we've always acted that way also at, at artful. And then someone like Katie McDonough, uh, who is developing a really interesting project. It's an early modern modern gazetteer who's interested in spatial history, um, has, has taken. So we were able to give her all of the geography articles out of the Encyclopédie, and she's used that uh, with the with technologists working in the Netherlands to, to build a sort of interface that, that shows you, or purports, uh, can, can give you insight into how, uh, in the Encyclopédie, space is represented. So how, how do we think about this? And these are things that are, uh, that are really interesting Uh, These are methods that that we just didn't have a few years ago, nor the resources. And then they feed back in. And so, uh, Katie came to Chicago, and she was working with the team there. And then uh, her uh, the sort of annotations that she has from her gazetteer, we can feed back into the encyclopedia and make that make that uh, interface. Smarter, more intelligent, uh, and so it, we see these things develop in, in in different directions, and so it's really exciting. and And Elizabeth Bond, and Robert Bond, their chapter on topic modeling this is a this is a, a, an unsupervised machine learning technique that uh, that's used a lot in, in digital humanities, but they use it in a really uh, a really interesting and and I think methodologically justified way um, in in thinking about how you can uh, how you can take uh, a large data set and then uh, break down how uh, in what what topics or what themes if you will uh, that they're talking about and you can trace that over over your data set so I think that these are these are methods that are that are out there but again they're intelligently used uh, and 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 they often offer interesting insights um, just one quick final note on that Clovis Gladstone and Charles Cooney who worked with Chicago again at artful on a big project using echo and we tried to sort of find all of the repeated passages in Echo. Um, the one thing we found was that the Bible was everywhere, which we didn't really notice As, as in scholars of French. In, in a French canonical uh, database like the one we have in Chicago, Frontex, which was compiled by uh, by scholars for linguistic purposes, there's almost no Bible. Um, and so uh, here we th- we found that perhaps of all the alignments, the 36 million alignments we found in Echo, 50% were were from the Bible. Uh, and so the preponderance of it and it dwarfed anything else so Shakespeare is the number uh, the number two but by a by a mile uh, and then Shakespeare already dwarfs the other so so it was it was something like that that came out of this way that we're using these methods of of sequence alignment which come comes out of bioinformatics uh, to sort of find uh, repeated passages in these huge data sets something like that which which became an engineering problem we had to actually install a turn the Bible off button in our interface because there was too much of it. Uh, but we didn't know that going in. And so it was this, this notion that that uh, that by, again, by applying these sorts of methods uh, to these interesting data sets, that something often uh, unforeseen comes out. And I think that's one of the, the great goals. And and I think it's uh, in that second part of the book, you can really feel that sort of dynamic uh questions that, that surge up uh, from the, these new methods.
1: Well, before I let you both um, go, because I've taken up so much of your day already, I'd just like to to kind of finish by asking you about what I think is a really fascinating dimension um, of the volume, and, and also digital humanities research quite generally. Um, and you touch upon this in your introduction, um, and this is the kind of geography, I suppose, and sociology of digitizing enlightenment scholarship. So much of of the digital uh, humanities work that exists really focuses on the French Enlightenment. And a a great deal of this is taking place um, in the Anglophone world. So I was wondering in your views, you know, what are some of the effects of the very different national approaches to digital humanities scholarship and also the French focus of a lot of this scholarship that's taking place?
0: I mean, it's an interesting question. And um, I sort of find myself in an an odd spot, too, as as an Anglo-Saxon American working working at the Sorbonne uh, on French literature, so you know I, from a, from a perspective in in France, I, I sort of know the history of digital humanities, which is a lot which is a lot different than than, than in the US or, or in the Anglo what they call the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, that in France, it was early on, there was a lot of, uh, of, of interest in quantitative history and computational history in the 60s and 70s and sort of ideological uh, approaches to, to data sets. I think of the the, the lab in Saint-Cloud. Um, but then for whatever reason, it sort of got a, a, a sketchy reputation in the 80s. And and they didn't really take back up digital humanities until, until probably 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and this for a variety of different reasons uh, and the focus the main focus has been on on digital editions uh which is none which is helpful and and then uh, an entity like the bibliothèque national digitizing their collections through gallica has been really important too uh, but they were just different uh, there was two different uh time it was just a, a sort of there was a disconnect between the resources that were available and the people using them, and then the methods uh, that came along. And it just so happened that the Anglo-Saxon world uh, developed, for whatever reason, these resources, which happened to be francophone. Uh, and then now, I think in France, it, that's progressively changing, uh, and they're retaking a lot of, or not retaking, but they're 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 more uh, particip- There's more participation in 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 digital humanities now than there was. But for a long time, it was a it was a uh, it just, there wasn't a lot of development in, uh, in France. Uh, and so it happened elsewhere. And I think that's, 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 uh, that's, that's borne out in, in the first part of the book. Uh, but not to say that we're ignoring these other projects that come along. It's just that the other projects that are now uh, in France um, are a lot younger. And so we hope to, to push that forward. And that's why the next Digitizing Enlightenment uh, conference, if, if, if conferences ever can happen again, uh, will be in Montpellier. and so we we aim to to work with a lot of the different uh, French projects specifically, uh, like Ancre. so like this digital critical edition of the Encyclopédie um, which which has been long in gestation, which was released a few years ago. Um, so you know, it's two 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 different strands, but 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 nonetheless, we've it's it's been the focus has been because of the resource over there because of the projects. there's a historical uh, sense of that. Uh, And then, of course, with echo, it's a different problem because that's the anglophone sphere. Uh, But I don't know if Simon wants to add in on that. The francophone nature comes out of our combined specialities, I believe.
2: Yeah, I think also there's no question that the genealogy of many of the projects that we have in the book uh, is very French in many ways. Um, my design to draw what my daughter calls dotty maps actually goes back to, I guess, when I was 16 and uh, at university first came across uh, Vauvel's work, uh, not at university, at high school. Um, uh, my teacher let me loose on his first copy that he had of Vauvel's book on the fall of the French monarchy in the English translation. And there were these anal school maps, which I saw for the first time. Um, equally, while I tend to tell the narrative because I've engaged with him more up till now, um, in terms of Robert Danton's work, uh, inspiring mine. Um, Robert Danton, in turn, was inspired by Mournay, um, but also the other figure um, is clearly François Furet and his team, who did some of this early digital work that Glenn talks about um, in terms of their book on Livre Society. Um, which used many of the data sets that I'm now using. Um, so so we should be looking back at those things. Uh, Alicia Montoya's project, very much inspired by Daniel Mournay's um, work as well on catalogues. Um, and, in, you know, that was very early uh, 20th century pre-computational work, as were much of the NR school work that uh, so fascinated me in terms of its maps, and, um, Katie uh, McDonough obviously is another person who's very aware of that. And very interested in geospatial mapping, um, and we've heard about the Artful Project being a joint Anglo-French project. Uh, sorry, American-French project. Um, shouldn't be claiming that for my country of birth. Um, so, so I think that we just had different. Developmental trajectories, but we were also very aware when we were writing that introduction, you know, that this was a bit of a political issue that we could actually be attacked for writing about the French Enlightenment and producing this book, um, where, for a variety of historical um, accidents, the major contributors were, and the major projects we were dealing with could be perceived as being um, Anglo-Saxon, uh, very much through and through. So we. know we deliberately set out to stress some of these genealogies um you know the that artful was an international collaborative project that we got alicia montoya's project that we had french scholars embedded in our teams as well and that gallica and the bibliothèque Nationale were such an enabling um force in our research in the things we were doing um so i definitely think that international collaboration as well as interproject collaboration is very much the order of the day for the next uh, the next phase and you know how we work across languages for some of our data sets will be quite interesting. My own database it, it has a problem as a teaching tool in the English-speaking world that uh, that so many of the titles and other things are actually presented in French but the notes and uh, the scholarship around it that we've presented is is presented in English um, so you know as someone using it needs to be, very fully bilingual to get anything like the most out of it um and that's perhaps a challenge going forward um for us to think about we did a one stage think about creating a french translation but the uh the uh, british uh arts and humanities research council thought that was a bit of a step too far um when we applied for funding for that they actually said we should have foreseen it in the original grant but at the time It wasn't just a question of uh, it wasn't just a question of translating the material. It was translating all the technical stuff. Um, And by chance, the last developer I had while I was working at Leeds um, was a historian who's now based at King's College, London, who just happened to be French and Basque and was started working with me to produce the maps um, while he was a doctoral student. Um, So. We couldn't have foreseen that and we were a little bit disappointed that the money didn't come through, though in retrospect, um, I think we, we had enough on our plate to develop it further as it was without that particular challenge, um, which would have involved many, many hundreds of thousands of lines of text, I think, being translated.
1: And it's a really important reminder that so much of this digitizing enlightenment scholarship is, is forward looking, right? It's, it's in evolution. And, you know, Glenn has already, you know, pointed out this idea of a, a living and evolving edition. You know, so many of these projects are there to, to be kind of, um, I suppose responsive to the climate and the research that's taking place. Well, I'd like to thank you both so much again um, for being on the podcast. Um, The book is is absolutely sensational and I'm sure um, listeners will will pick up a copy and and enjoy reading it. Um, Just to remind everyone, the book is Digitizing Enlightenment, Digital Humanities and the Transformation of 18th Century Studies, published by Liverpool University Press in 2020. Simon and Glenn, I'd like to thank you for being on the show today.
2: Thank you, Alexander. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. I hope we get the chance to talk further at some future stage.
1: Well, I look forward to hearing about that new secret research project that you're both uh, alluding to in the background. Perhaps we can have you on the show again.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) We look forward to it.